I never met my mother's father, and that may be part of the appeal. He's a story, a rumor, and as we'll see, a certain amount of distance is also very useful when telling this story. It's much easier, safer, to think of things in terms of cliffhangers and plot twists than of the real emotions of the people who lived it. I grew increasingly fascinated with him, so much so in fact that I often felt a good deal of guilt about my relative lack of interest in some other branches of my family tree. Hello, Mother. That's Hello, the beginning. Son. I've got to say that to her. Okay. You do have to say okay. that. This is my mother, Linda. Lynn. I told you, they, they were meant to be, well, leaving the country. We're going over some of the, I hesitate to say facts, but until recently, this is what we thought we knew about his early life. I only remember hearing that from my He mom. was Jewish and Austrian-Dutch, born in a place called Lemberg. His name was Adolf. I know. Adolf Lempert, but originally, apparently, Adolf Mendelwitz. He lost his family in the Holocaust, but he escaped. One version even has him literally escaping a concentration camp. In any case, he made it to London and changed his surname to Lempert, apparently an anglicised version of his birthplace. One might have thought this was an opportunity to change that first name, but you do you, Adolf. Were you growing up aware that that was a slightly problematic name? Were you like, would, would you just go, yeah, my dad's called Adolf? Adolf from Hitler. Um, probably, yes. I, must, uh, I, I don't think as a kid I would have thought much about it. No, because you weren't and By like... the time I was an adult, yeah. it wasn't, you know, I just thought, oh, it's like Adolf Hitler. Yeah, know? exactly, yeah. But um, he was always called Addy. Right, OK. During the rest of the war, he served in the RAF as a navigator and even got a medal. We know this because my mother has that medal. She gave it to me. While in England, he met and married my nan, who was called Olive. And so Dad used to call her Oddie. <laughs> Oddie? Yeah. So Addie and Oddie. Yeah. OK, right. Addie and Oddie had two daughters. First my Auntie Pauline, then my mother. And Addie, Adolf, was a stamp dealer. A pretty successful one too, with an office in Gerrard Street in the West End. All I can remember him doing was stamps. Right. I think he, when he was, he, how he got into the stamps, I'm not sure. The reason these details are vague or uncertain is partly because, perhaps understandably, he didn't speak much about his past to his young daughters. But it's mainly because of something he did in what I've come to think of as his controversial third act. Something that meant he was pretty much persona non grata from then on. As I said, a certain amount of distance can be useful. This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. As I woke up to the news that Britain had voted to leave the European Union, I felt, as I guess many out-of-touch Liberopolitan millennials did, that a part of my identity had been taken away. Heartbroken, with no sense of hope, I panicked. I even rejoined the Liberal Democrats at one point. This is unfair. The North London Lib Dems are a really nice bunch. But soon, thoughts turned to my grandfather. Somewhat of an enigma, but certainly born in Europe, discovering more about him would be a way to reclaim this European identity. There was also the more practical, selfish motivation of somehow using this ancestry to hold on to my EU passport by applying to be a citizen of... And here, really, was the first problem. Austrian-Dutch? Is that a thing? Am I applying for an Austrian passport or a Dutch passport? He was born in Lemberg, but I couldn't find a Lemberg in Austria or the Netherlands. I asked my mother if she had any more details about him. She gave me a middle name of Moritz and a birth year of 1913, April 1913. With that, I began this journey, one that will take us from Lemberg to Lisbon to London, from escaping Nazis to fighting the Nazis and from stamp dealing to French prisons and Freemasonry. My name is Andrew Evans, and this is Unboarded, my search for Adolf Lempert.
you Google Adolf Lempert, the first result you get is from the archives of the London Gazette. In 1949, Adolf Moritz Lempert, a stamp dealer of uncertain nationality, is on a list of aliens to whom certificates of naturalisation have been granted by the Secretary of State and whose oaths of allegiance have been registered in the Home Office during the month of May 1949. Uncertain nationality. This already didn't bode well for that passport application. Knowing he served in the RAF, I tried... R.A.F. Adolf. Lempert. This gives you a list of war pilots in service of the Royal Air Force and Fleet Air Arm between the 14th of May 1940 and 1st of January 1945 in the European War Theatre, and this is a list on which he appears. This was a good result. It gave me his squadron number, 320, confirmed his date of birth, 24th of April 1913, and his birthplace of Den Haag, The Hague, in the Netherlands. And so, almost straight away, I lost one of our few agreed-upon facts, his birthplace of Lemberg. I put in a request to the Netherlands Institute for Military History for more information. Meanwhile, further searches for Adolf Lempert, or Adolf Mendelwitz, supposedly his birth name, were fairly fruitless, just a handful of London addresses we already knew about. Fearing a dead end, I dispensed with surnames altogether, and began searching using just his forenames, Adolf Moritz, thankfully a rare combination, and his birthday, 24th of April, 1913. I put this information into family search, and through this site I found Anne Adolf Moritz. One. Born in 1913, April 24th. It had to be him. But the surname wasn't Lempert or Mendelwitz. It was Zuckercandle. One thing I've learned about family trees is it really helps if your family were moving around a lot. Immigrants equal immigration documents. It's especially useful if they attract the attention of the police. And so a great deal of credit must go to Zaya Zuckercandle, my, as it turns out, great-grandfather. The result from family search was from the Belgium Antwerp Police Immigration Index, 1840 to 1930, which led me to 30 pages of documents. The first thing I saw was a photo of a family. A mother, a father and four children. Even before translating anything, I was able to check the documents and put names to these faces. Zaya Zuckercandle, his wife, Frieda Regina, and their children, Rosa Philip, Mori, Mori, we, we think it says Morier, we might come on to that later. And, right in the middle, the oldest son, looking, as my sister noted, a lot like Fievel Mouskowitz from the animated feature An American Tale, Adolf. It was nice to see the name Frieda Regina. That's where I got my That's name. That's your grandmother, because your middle name is... Regina. Regina, exactly. But you didn't know that that was a... Which I didn't or, like when I was at school. Because it, it was pronounced Regina. Mm. Well, I kind of... <laughs> yeah. Also in the file, we had Zaya's birth certificate. I don't know if this was typical for the time, but it reads more like a little story than a formal document. On the 6th of August, 1888, born in Scalat in a house with the number 12, a child that was circumcised in the synagogue on the 13th of August, and it received the name Zaya. It was, the story continues, an illegitimate child. His mother was Sprintz, daughter of Zelig and Ruschel Zuckercandle. Although Abe Mayer Lempert was acknowledged to be the father, and although they do later marry, Zaya takes his mother's name. So here I learned Lempert wasn't a name that Adolf invented when he reached England. It was the name of his grandfather. At this point, I could also assume that Mendelwitz was just wrong. Curiously, this entry into the Registers for Births in the Jewish district of Scalat doesn't seem to have been made until 1921. And the version I have is a French translation made in January 1940 for reasons that will eventually become clear-ish. 
Zaya and Frida were married in 1912 in Lemberg. And in 1913, still in Lemberg, not The Hague, they had a son, Adolf Moritz. So he was born in Lemberg. But where is Lemberg? And why do all these documents say he's Polish? Clearly, we need to talk about Lemberg. Hi there, can you hear me now? Hello, I can hear you very well. Good, okay, excellent. If you could just introduce yourself in a sort of short bio format. Yeah, I'm, my name's Philippe Sands. I teach international law at UCL. I'm a barrister at Matrix Chambers, and I wrote a book called East West Street. Really, you should just stop listening to this now and go and read East West Street. It's an astonishing book, telling the story of the origins of international law, but so much more besides. And I was particularly drawn to the pages that cover Philippe's own family history. His grandfather, Leon, was also born in this obscure city city. called Lemberg. Uh, I knew him very well. I knew him until I was 37 years old. But he never talked about anything that happened before 1945. So I never really knew. I knew nothing about his family. I knew nothing about the background. I just knew terrible things had happened, but I didn't know the details. Um, In 2010, I received an invitation to give a lecture in the University of Lviv, on the work that I do as a barrister and as an academic on crimes against humanity and genocide. And I accepted basically because I wanted to see the city he came from once I'd worked out that Lviv was Lemberg, was Lvov, that it was all the same place. And I was just curious, actually, to find the house that he lived in. That was the the heart uh, of the reason that this great adventure began. So Lemberg is the city now known as Lviv, part of the Ukraine. I am going to just break the fourth wall here quickly and tell you that, of course, I'd already Googled Lemberg before speaking to Philippe and knew it was now known as Lviv. But in trying to construct a compelling narrative, it's much better if you hear that bit from an international lawyer. At the time my grandfather was born, Lemberg, as it was then, was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but not for long. In fact, between 1914 and 1945, Lemberg, Lviv, Lviv, would change hands, I think, seven or eight times. But by 1914, the Zucker candles are already in Leipzig, Germany. That is, I assume they are, because it's there they have a daughter, Rosa. There then follows a seven-year period in which I'm unable to pin them down. A period that obviously takes in the entire First World War. But in 1921, they are in the Netherlands, The Hague, where a third child is born, a son, Philip, and three years later, still in The Hague, a fourth and final child, Mori... It's spelled M-O-R-I-J-E. Morier? Until very recently, we'd been pronouncing it Morridge, like porridge, even though we were almost certain this wasn't a name. One of the handwritten entries looks like it might even be Mary, but with an E on the end. Zaya gained a bad reputation in the Netherlands. Nothing too scandalous by the looks of it, most likely insurance fraud, a theft that never really happened. Bad enough, mind you, that in 1926, he's expelled from the entire country, which is why, in 1926, Belgium Antwerp Police Immigration File number 191141 is opened, complete with family portrait. But why when they enter, a Zaya, Frieda and Adolf recorded as Polish? Philippe Sands had wondered the same thing about his grandfather, Leon. When I went to Lviv for the first time to prepare, my, I asked my mother whether she had any documents. And she surprised me by saying she did. And in the bundle of documents, I found a Polish passport in his name, Leon Buchholz, that dated to 1923. And I was curious about that. I didn't quite understand how a city he was born in in 1904 and left in 1914, when he was 10 years old, could leave him with Polish nationality. He discovered that following the First World War, alongside the main Treaty of Versailles, a number of other treaties were also signed. One of which it was known as the Little Treaty of Versailles. And that treaty essentially um, provided for a new rule to be applicable, which basically said, as part of the price of gaining Uh, independence, Poland was required, firstly, 
to give minorities living within its new territory uh, protections under the law. And secondly, that any person born in the territory of what was about to become Poland, even before 1919, would be treated as a Polish national. And so my grandfather, by operation of the little treaty of Versailles of the summer of 1919, became a Polish national. And I suspect that's exactly what happened for your grandfather, because he was born in the same city. So Zaya, Frieda and my grandfather all entered Belgium as Polish citizens. Rosa, of course, is listed as German, and Philip and Mo... whatever, are Dutch. I have to say, in his picture, suited with slicked back hair and an unfortunate toothbrush moustache, Zaya does look a little shady. But his documents remark several times on his not causing any trouble. He sells knitwear and underwear in Antwerp, pays his taxes, and all seems well until the 23rd of May 1934, when he is, again, told to leave the country, that he must report within 24 hours to receive his travel card. But, for whatever reason, he doesn't. And it's not as though they lose track of him. They continue to keep tabs on the whole family. Which is why I know, for example, that on the 1st of June 1935, age 22, Adolf moved from Antwerp to Scharbeck in Brussels. And that on the 20th of June, he was joined by the rest of the family, save the mysterious Morier, of whom there is no further record. I know that they lived there until June 1937, when Zaya, Frieda, Rosa and Philip moved to nearby saint just presumably leaving Adolf in Scharbeck. But something happened during this time that would have affected my grandfather and his parents. In the mid-1930s, I forget what date, about 1934, after Hitler came to power, the Polish government abrogated the little Treaty of Versailles. And with that act, those people who had been given Polish nationality in 1919 lost it. And so my grandfather became a stateless person after that date. On the 1st of September, 1939, Germany invaded Poland and the Second World War began. On the 30th of December, 1939, Zaya, and maybe just Zaya, is back in Antwerp, showing his ID issued in San Jos. In February 1940, he's still living there, selling skins and furs. The translation of his birth certificate found in his immigration files dates from this time. By now, he must have been fully aware that he had become stateless and what was going on across Europe. They would already have known for seven years what was going on in Germany. They would have known of what happened when Germany takes over your country. They would have had reports from Czechoslovakia, they would have had reports from Austria. Radio was already up and running by then. And I know from um, speaking to people who remember listening to radio in Zsolkiev, the small town outside Lviv, that they could listen to radio stations and so they would get news about what was going on. So he would have known, either by newspaper reports or by radio, what was going on in other places. Um, and that, I think, would have created a tremendous sense of anxiety because they would have known that if the Germans entered Belgium, they would be in tremendous difficulty. That would have given rise to a whole load of questions about what do we do, where do we go. That may well have been why, on the 4th of May 1940, Adolf wrote on behalf of his mother, brother and sister, asking if they can have permission to use the name Lempert. Apparently, the chamber had accepted their request to become Belgian citizens. They just needed the paperwork to show this change of name. He enclosed five Belgian francs for expenses. Zaya, he claimed, had already obtained this permission. They obviously felt that becoming Belgian citizens might offer them some degree of protection. It's curious. I mean, that's, that would be the working assumption. But of course, you couldn't plan for every uh, sort of eventuality, and we didn't know how the Germans would precisely operate their laws. And it may well have been that unwittingly he was putting himself in a worse situation. On the 10th of May 1940, Germany invaded Belgium. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. 
have no choice. We have no choice. The bulk of my research takes place on sleepless nights, 2 a.m. to 3 a.m., tending to be somewhat of a golden hour. It was one such night, as news of Trump's Muslim ban and the subsequent upheaval filled my Twitter feed, that I found a list that confirmed our long-held assumption that most of my mother's family were murdered at Auschwitz. There are several ways to search online for victims of the Holocaust, but I used the database of Kazern Dossin, a museum in Belgium that sits next to the former Mechlin transit camp from which Jews and Romani were sent. Searching for Rosa Zucker candle, I'd actually had no results until I changed the match accuracy to fuzzy. This gave me page 44 of the records of the 10th transport from Mechlin to Auschwitz. Rosa's name had been recorded as Rose Zucker Handel. In fact, the K had been replaced with an H by hand. The same had been done to Philip's name. More confusingly, their father Zaya's surname was recorded as Lemberg, as was his wife Frieda's, though this also had been crossed out by hand, leaving just her maiden name of Gruber. The database had a picture of Philip attached to his entry. It looks like it came from some form of ID, an illegible quarter of a stamp across the photo's bottom right-hand corner. Philip is fair-haired and fresh-faced, 21 at the oldest. I called my mother the next day. That was actually quite poignant. Yeah, Just well, seeing, seeing it on a list. Seeing that on a piece of paper, a, the fact that they've all got yeah. a number. So... What exactly happened? And how did my grandfather, Adolf Zuckerkandl, by that time a stateless Jew in an occupied country, get away? As I'd already discovered from the immigration documents, as late as the 4th of May 1940, Adolf was still in Belgium, writing on behalf of his mother, brother and sister, asking if they can have permission to change their name to Lempert and become Belgian citizens. But five days later, the deputy police commissioner replied to say he could not grant this request. The very next day, Germany invaded Belgium. However, as international lawyer Philippe Sands discovered with regards to his own grandfather, also born within the blurred borders of Lemberg, Lviv, Lvov, remaining stateless may have been an advantage. It did mean Curiously, as I learned, that because he was stateless and because stateless people didn't get a J in their passports, in their travel documents when they left Vienna, that may well have saved him when he got to France. I mean, I think each case turns on its own particular and weird facts, but I think my grandfather may have been let slightly off the hook by the fact that he was stateless. It may have made things less difficult. Meanwhile, I had received my grandfather's documents from the Netherlands Institute for Military History, and here he has changed his name to Adolf Lempert. He may have taken matters into his own hands. These pages contained a photograph of him. He is in his late 20s, looking as I'd always imagined he would. Thick, black, wavy hair, dark features. He's scowling slightly, like the sun is in his eyes. He's in a uniform. All the information was in Dutch, and even with a good translation, for any real insight, I thought I'd better get some help. Starting route to Royal Air Force Museum. Turn right onto High Street, then turn right. I'm on my way to interview a guy called Chris Hendricks, who's very kindly agreed to speak to me. Chris is head researcher there, and the museum's PR executive and whatever they're paying him, give him a raise, because he could not have been more helpful. Full disclosure, thanks to some technical difficulties, this is the second time he had to sit down with me. The destination is on your left, Royal Air Force Museum. Arrived. Here we are. And I've got a little clip on mic for you, if that's okay. That's fine. Good. What must have been happening in Belgium in May 1940? So the German forces they had invaded Belgium and, and, and instantly had had, uh, had great success. So uh, it must have dawned on him quite early on that 
uh, that Belgium was going to get occupied and uh, with, with him inside, mm-hmm. uh, knowing the condition or the, hard, the hardship that the Jews were in in the German Reich, he must have made that decision to, uh, to escape. Oh yeah, here it is, yeah. So there's that two-year two year gap, which is quite interesting, really. The start date on his military records is the 15th of May, 1940. But this feels as though it's been decided retrospectively. Maybe to tally with the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands. It's certainly nowhere to be found on the contemporaneous forms, only those that have been written or typed up at a later date. The first legitimate-looking date is more than two years later, June 1942, when he arrives in London via Portugal. So, how would he get to Portugal? Obviously, the first, first place to go to would be France, which would be the normal, normal route. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because things were developing quite quickly, um, a lot of Belgians then moved further south uh, and went to Algeria and Morocco. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them went over there. So that also includes um, a lot of Belgian pilots, a lot of Belgian military personnel. And from there, because of course in June 1940, the French capitulated as well, a lot of them decided to continue the fight and, um, and, and then went to England. Now, I, I would assume, because of he had the same interests, really, as in staying alive, and, mm. and, and uh, he, um, he, he, would have, he would have done something similar. Another way to do it, because, of course, he wasn't in the military at that point, would be no. to simply go to safety. And the best place to go to then would be Spain, or even more so Portugal. Chris describes this journey so logically, so matter-of-factly, that it's only later, I think, that's a lot of borders to cross. Was it really that easy? Especially for a stateless Jew in a Nazi-occupied country. Did he even have a passport? Could you cross without one? You would have had to have documents to allow you to travel. I put this to Philippe Sands, and, like all the best experts, he doesn't claim any authority outside of his fields of expertise, but he does carefully reason from the facts of his grandfather's life. He must have travelled from Austria to Poland without a passport, i.e. establishing that it was possible to do so. I think it was difficult, but easier than it would be today. Passport or not, Adolf made it to Portugal. And why Portugal? Because the difference between Portugal and Spain is that because although both countries were neutral, Mm -hmm. uh, Spain was pro-German, while Portugal was Mm -hmm. pro-Allied. So there was a bit of a difference there. And Portugal, especially the capital Lisbon, was was quite of a a haven for for, for Allied, especially British spies and diplomats. So it was a bit of a port to get into the, the European continent. Indeed, with their priceless letters of transit, it is to Lisbon that Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman were headed in the movie Casablanca. So if you'd made it to Portugal, you'd made it. For now, you're safe. Congratulations, Adolf. You've just escaped the Nazis. But he carried on. Not only did he arrive in England, but almost immediately joined the, the Dutch forces. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just wondering what would have accounted for that. And, and my guess is that when we look in at early 1942, when he must have taken that decision, mm. um, the war wasn't going all that great for the Allies. Um, it was right. only until November 1942, the Battle of Stalingrad, the Battle of El Alamein, mm-hmm. that the tables really turned uh, and that the Allies were, were advancing. Until that point, the German troops seemed to be quite invincible, really. So it's only when they overstretched. Yes, right. yes, exactly. Um, and so he, it must have dawned on him that uh, at some point he needs to stand up and fight. Um, mm. It's difficult to kind of gauge like what, 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 his, what his state of mind might, must have been. And I'm also wondering like what kind of contact he still had with the people back home. Mm. I'm curious about that as well. If there was contact, for sure, they must have, he must have found out that the conditions were deteriorating for the Jews because... Um, how it happened was while in, in early on in 1940 there was discrimination, there was registration of the Jews, mm. but very gradually the number of rules and limitations increased. So life was, was very slowly but, but definitely uh, deteriorating for mm. the Jews. So he might, might have been able to pick up on that as well and that might have stuck in his mind. Maybe sure. there was a bit of guilt as well. It's kind of a feeling of, well, I escaped but my family's still there. If I want to do anything to rescue them, well, maybe I need to fight as well. I don't know what he knew. 
and I can't be sure when he made it to Portugal. It could be any time between May 1940 and June 1942. Maybe he left late with the express purpose of joining the military. Or maybe he got there sometime in 1940 and took a while to choose his next move. I wondered what the Belgian reaction had been to the Nazi occupation and anti-Jewish legislation. I was somewhat heartened to learn that when it came time to distribute the yellow badges, Belgian civil authorities in Brussels risked refusing to do so. In Antwerp, the German authorities were unable to enforce the policy at all when non-Jewish citizens wore the armbands themselves in protest. Maybe these acts of resistance played no part in my grandfather's survival and my existence. Maybe they bought him just enough time. There had always been a story of him escaping a camp, but from what I can tell, the Jews of Belgium weren't ordered to Mechelen transit camp until July 1942, by which time he was definitely in London. So it seems as though another version my mother heard is more likely. I told you, they, they were meant to be, well, leaving the country All on a boat. Them. Yeah. On a boat. On a boat, the whole okay. family, yeah. apparently. Mm-hmm. Like other people, just getting away from the country. Yeah. And different families with their suitcases, mm-hmm. and they paid to get on. It was all legit to do it. Yeah. But when they got on the boat, the Germans had already got on. Okay. And everybody was on there. They just captured and took them off to where they wanted to take them. My grandfather, for whatever reason, just never boarded this boat. On the 15th of September, 1942, Zaya, Frieda, Rosa and Philip are deported on the 10th transport from Mechelen Transit Camp to Auschwitz Extermination Camp. By this time, Rosa's profession is listed as fur tailor, like her father. Philip is a student, Frida a housewife. They're murdered in the Shoah. Again, how much of this my grandfather knew at the time, I can't say. What I do know is that as part of 320 Squadron, he became a navigator and served throughout the war. 320 Squadron was a Dutch squadron, initially formed from the personnel of the Royal Netherlands Naval Air Service, they literally escaped with eight planes during the German invasion and made it to England. What, what I find very interesting, and this talking from a, from a Royal Air Force historian, is uh, the documents written in Dutch show that uh, he was part of the Dutch military forces, which right. in reality didn't exist anymore. They were completely part of the British forces. This quirk of having a parallel Dutch military record at a time when the Dutch military was not technically a thing is interesting to Chris as a Royal Air Force historian, but it's interesting to me because, as we know... We're talking about the Dutch forces, but from everything I know, he wasn't Dutch. No. And so they can only have got that information from him. In addition to giving his name as Adolf Lempert, he gives his birthplace as The Hague. Was this common? Was this a thing? Yes. Um, so what you have to understand is in May 1940, um, there was disarray. There was, there was, there was no organisation worth mentioning. Mm. Um, so Belgium and Holland, they were overrun within days. France, in a matter of weeks, um, which led to a great number of refugees. Um, and a breakdown of normal communication channels and organisation. By this stage, he spoke several languages, including Dutch, and Lisbon was a pretty good place to get forged documents. But really, this may not have even been necessary. Obviously, they would have seen or or realised that he's not Dutch because he, for sure, he would have had a very thick accent. Mm. Um, But as we see very often, that was not a problem. We see, um, during World War II, we see 15, 16-year-old boys signing up, claiming that they are 18 Mm -hmm. and getting away with it. We see um, the oldest oldest, uh, person on a bomber aircraft was 65 Mm -hmm. um, because he he basically forged his his ID and um, uh, claimed he was a lot younger. So it wasn't all that hard, really, to uh, to kind of change it. And on the other hand... I don't think the authorities really mind either. I think they would have been happy with any able-bodied man to to join. Knowing what I do about his personality, it's tempting to imagine him just talking his way into the Air Force and surviving on charm alone. So I asked Chris how he would have become a navigator. 
what would have happened? Well, so what happened is that he would have he would have joined. Um, they would have examined him um, physically, mentally, intellectually, mm-hmm. um, and they would have also asked him. So, what would you like to do? And he would he would probably have said, well. Maybe he would have said, oh, I want to be a pilot. Mm. So a lot of them actually end up like saying, oh, I want to be a pilot, because it just makes sense. Um, And then most of them do not end up being pilot and also not really assigned to it. Um, But they would, the RAF would try to find the best possible uh, way to use you. Uh, So they must have realized at some point that he he was either technically or, 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 or intellectually quite suited for the navigator role. They needed to be calm. Um, brave, but not stupidly brave, so still rational. Yes, not reckless. And no doubt the navigator um, had to be good at math, uh, mm-hmm. or at least have that ability to, to, to calculate under stress. I would say, together with the pilot, the navigator and the flight engineer, they were the three most technical roles within mm-hmm. the aircraft. Uh, a bomb aimer less so, mm-hmm. uh, a wireless operator probably who had to be a bit more technical, but he had more of a limited role. Also, he doubled as a, as a gunner. And right. uh, the, the thing about gunners is that they really only had to do one thing, and that yeah, is just sure. be able to, to shoot straight. As long as you have a good eye. Yes, pretty yeah. much. So, okay. uh, and, and they might have to be a bit reckless in a way. It's very much teamwork, really. So they were all very, very closely connected. And the best crews were those who were good at that, at actually working well together. And were they crews, was that your crew? Would they stay together? Yes. Always been there? Yes, indeed. So when a crew was together, they stayed together. They were a very closely knit family. And I guess the main reason is that they all depended on each other for their survival. Mm. You cannot really get much closer than that. I think it's fair to say he earned that medal that currently sits on my bedside table. He must have been very inventive, really. Uh, I mean, to not only having, having uh, that ability to adapt, uh, moving from, from, from one place to the other, uh, you know, like com- going from, from what is now Ukraine, mm. uh, then to Holland, then to Belgium, then also escaping all the way to Portugal. Um, I, I, I think by that time, it's, it's, he must have been quite a survivor, really. Mm. Uh, and then to, to get to England, uh, he must have been very strong in his head, and that must have been something that they recognised as well. If you ever wonder what you would have done during the rise of fascism in the 30s, Just look at what you're doing now, because it's happening again. I'd heard this question, or versions of it, posed before. During the George W. Bush administration specifically, the invasion of Iraq, the Patriot Act, Guantanamo. It wasn't a question I took all that seriously then. Godwin's Law, etc. But lately... Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. What did you say it with me? We If you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. We will build a great wall along the southern border. As a leading human rights lawyer, Philippe Sands knows more than a thing or two about the horrors humanity is capable of. It's something that I think about now, unfortunately, with increasing frequency. I didn't think about that in the time of the George W. Bush administration. I mean, I thought he was, you know, objectionable and doing lots of stupid things. But but within the broad framework and everything that they tried to do, they tried to justify within the existing rules. The Trump administration actually, you know, wants to destroy the rules, hell-bent on destroying the 1945 order, and there is method to what they are doing. We are in very different times now from the time of Bush. I mean, I think about that question a lot, and also, obviously, what do we do about it? Doing nothing is not an option, but we all feel relatively powerless, and so I think one of the things that we can do that is different is we can talk about it and not bury our head in the sands and not assume it'll just go away.
you only have to look at the city in which this story began. One of the powerful effects for me of spending time in a city like Lviv, which was in the 1920s and 30s, a thriving metropolis with lots of different communities, was it was unimaginable that their world would be utterly and totally destroyed. And yet it was. And I look around London now where I live and ask myself the question, could that also happen here? And of course the answer is why not? I don't think we can assume that somehow human nature has changed and the human being's capacity to do terrible things to each other has somehow disappeared. I don't think it has disappeared. And I think that we need to be acutely alert to the risks and to the dangers. Adolf Lempert met Olive, my nan. It was when he was stationed in England mm-hmm. that he met my mum. Yep. Dancing in London. Yeah, mm. in the West End, yep. up west. Okay. And, and it all went from there. In 1949, Adolf Lempert, of uncertain nationality, became a British citizen. He and my nan went on to have two children, my auntie Pauline and my mother, Linda. I won't say your age. On the recording. Okay. But you were born in 1953. I was. So, yeah. Okay. Just the same room. Well, no, (laughs) because this could have been recorded. It could have been recorded ages ago. Okay. So, sorry, Um, do you want to start again now? No, that's fine. Now, I don't know what role, if any, his faith had really played up to this point. But he married a non-Jewish woman. His daughters were both christened, C of E. Their school is a convent, for Christ's convent. sake. So you were taught convent by nuns. I was taught by nuns. Okay. Most of them were nuns. Yeah. But I don't necessarily see this as a conscious rejection of his past, so much as him doing what by now must have come instinctively, adapting. An outsider doing his best impression of an insider. His father, Zaya, sold underwear on the streets of Antwerp to support his family. It's hard to work things out exactly in today's money, Hard for me, that is. But even later, selling skins and furs, he still only made the equivalent of about £60 a week. To me, Adolf clearly now had his eyes set on an English life. A particular type of Englishness, too. Yes, Dad was a bit of a snob. That convent with those nuns also happened to be the best private school in the area. He bought ponies for both his daughters. He rode horses himself. He liked the middle-classy type people. Yeah. Not in a horrible way. He didn't no, look down at the people. in an aspirational way. Yeah. His post-war profession was stamp dealer. All I can remember him doing was stamps. How he got into the stamps, I'm not sure. And ironically, dealing with a commodity that can famously be posted, this job meant he travelled a lot. In turn, this meant him coming home could be a bit of an event. He used to bring us presents back. That was okay. Quite... <laughs> what been kind away. of exotic continental? Oh, I had a harlequin doll. Wow. Okay. And and I got a bulldog, and it had a big collar on. And when you pulled the chain, it barked. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and was this a big deal in the Lemper well, yeah. house? He had an office in the West End, and he had an office at home because I used to go in there and sit on his lap. Oh, while okay. he was doing his stamps. So he wasn't un, he wasn't cold. Oh no, no. 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 Nor was he a patriarchal figure. Whatever mum said yeah. went. Not because okay. she was overpowering, but because he wanted mum to be happy. He just put her on a pedestal. Hmm. I think would have been for many, many years. But now we have to get to it. Eighteen was when mum and dad split. He was then home for... I mean, there's an extra bit. Oh, sorry, there's an extra bit first. Mum didn't hear from him for about three months. Oh, right. And he then got a... She got a telephone call or letter or something from a lawyer in France. And he... I don't know that it was because he didn't get... Well, he did get done for it, I suppose. It must have been some sort of bit of a dodgy deal. Whether he knew about it being a dodgy deal or not, because he hadn't done anything like that before. Yeah. But um, got he got caught and he okay. was in prison for a few months, right. <laughs> I think, in France. So, when, so was, Mum told me, because I can remember vaguely that she was quite worried. Sort of because worried you know, yeah, he hadn't come home. Because she hadn't heard from him. Right. Um, and that was a little longer than usual. So he just had hearing. to stay in. Uh, it was the Masonic people. 
He what, was, that got him out? Yeah. Was he a Freemason? He was a Freemason. He was a worshipful master. Was he? This story of Freemasonry and French jails feels like it could take an episode in itself to pick apart. As is often the case with Adolf, there is another version of the story, one in which, if the Freemasons had any involvement at all, it was supporting my nan while my grandfather was away. I'm not saying either version is true. Like I say, another episode, another time. We have to get on. Oh yes, it was when I was probably about 15 or so that he wasn't coming home as much. My nan knew he was setting up a second office in Paris on Boulevard Hausmann, but as weeks turned to months, and with their 25th wedding anniversary approaching, she called to ask when he was coming home. Just the one day, apparently, he said, well, actually, I'm not. Right, OK. <laughs> it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision, was it? Oh, no, if he'd been, been, setting he'd, up, he'd he'd sort been of living been... with her, okay. and he'd probably been with her for quite a while. He'd been living with another woman, and it gets worse. He'd already sold the business. Right. Because she couldn't get an answer from the London office. Oh, OK. You will have noticed, no doubt, that I am not a journalist, so I don't know how these things work. But for this podcast, to be safe, I'm going to call this woman Anna, not her real name. And I'm going to bleep the name if we speak about her on the recording, because I have good reason to think Anna could still be around to hear this. Although my grandfather was well into his 50s at this point... She was, I think she was 24. And just for some dramatic flair... She was German, she? was German. She? And Catholic. Yes. OK. Yeah. German Catholic. Just to add to the... Yeah. <laughs> a Jew. To the taboo. Jewish, yeah. But that's not all. Because you still always sent money. But then he had remortgaged the house without, without telling her, yeah. it. So mum tells me, and it must yes. have been because she didn't have that much money to... Yes. She couldn't stay there. Seeing him, as I often do, more as a character than a relative, it can be easy to chalk this up as just another chapter in a colourful life. But from any angle, it's a low, crummy thing to do. You likely never met my nan, but it's hard to think of a kinder, more good-natured person. My yeah. mum was such a sweet lovely person. Exactly, yeah, it's yeah. hard to picture her as anyone that deserved, you yes. know, you can't she imagine did, she, she deserved really it. She really didn't deserve that. Yeah, exactly. I don't think he deliberately thought, I want to be a bastard. No. But it was just, I want, this is what I want to do. He just happened to fall into her company, I suppose. Yeah. I don't think he went out in search of someone. I think this next bit is probably the worst. I can remember going to London mm-hmm. with Mum, because she said, would I go with her? And because she was going to meet Dad at the station, yeah, and he was going to give us some money. Okay. And he turned up, yeah, walking down the road with. Oh, okay. Arm. Now that's, you know, yeah, that's 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 not nice. That's, not that's nasty. That's not good. That turned me a little bit. Yeah. Because even then, at my age, you know, because my mum went, "Is that? Oh, she's she's with him. She's with him." Yeah, went, yeah. And mum, come on, we're going, we're going. And I went, but you need. You know, yeah. you come so I, so she went down into the station, I seem to remember. When you and I stayed there mm-hmm. and waited till he came up to us. Okay. And he said he came up and hi and wow. Yeah. I just took the money and said thank you and, and went. Yeah. Because I was a bit, that was a bit of a kick in the teeth. That's the only thing, actually, that seems quite self-consciously cruel. Yes. Like you can't pretend you wouldn't know that would upset That would somebody. upset my mum. Yeah. Yes, she hadn't wanted the split. Yeah. It was quite new and raw to her. It, mm. I mean, it could have been months and months later, to be fair. Still. Knowing all this, I have to wonder what it says about me that I'm still drawn to him. Why do I still find him so compelling? Why have I made a podcast about him? My granddad, my dad's dad, Tom Evans, was a soldier in the Somerset Light Inventory. One of the few stories he would tell of his time in the war was of charging up a hill, a friend from home either side of him, both of whom were shot and killed. I'm not convinced that I would have been charging up that hill into gunfire. I worry I may have been running in the opposite direction. Adolf Lempert, unlike me, was clearly no coward. Not that kind of coward, anyway. But he does seem to have survived more on his wits on a way with words, a talent for ingratiation. And it's easier for me to relate to this.
He did go on to marry Anna in 1971, and they lived together in Paris, where he continued to deal stamps. I genuinely think he just wanted his wife or his girlfriend or whatever to be with him. Yes. He was quite happy to spend all his time with them. That was always what he'd wanted to do with Mum. He wanted her to go abroad. He wanted to take her everywhere with him. You know? Okay. But, and she would have done, but, but she did. But she wanted, she was going to, when she had the children, she wanted to bring us up. Mm. You know? um, which is, some people would have been over the moon, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't Mum. She wasn't letting us be no. brought up by a stranger. No, you know? exactly. I think Dad would have kept in touch with us, but mm. Mum didn't want him to. No. And, you Understandably. Know, it is, thing. but well, I don't know. I can see why she it's, wouldn't want to have anything. I think it's it's still not fair on your kids. I suppose. But if you're that bitter, or I it's think not bitter, with it's mum, sort of it wasn't bitter. Wasn't she? It was more embarrassment. That was why we had to say, you know, my dad dad would have come and, to the wedding, but it he was, was like, basically it would, it would have been mum or dad. I can't remember her ever saying, it's him or me. She wouldn't have got stroppy it about implicit. it. But she was upset at the thought yeah. of him being there. Mm-hmm. So it was mum or dad, yeah. basically. My cousin gave, gave me away. away. Okay. Um, because at the last minute, dad had got malaria and was in hospital. Right, okay, malaria, specifically. Because okay. he had had that. Yeah, okay. Uh, Flared up again. Um, and he couldn't make it. And she never saw him again. At least, that was the official story, while my nan was still alive. There is actually one final part. Around about 1980, my mum and dad took a trip to Paris. This wasn't done with the intention of looking for her father, but while they were there, it did occur to her that she knew the address of that Paris office he'd set up. And yes, Mr Lempert was still registered. Yeah. Um, Boulevard husband. Yeah. And there was a telephone number. Mm-hmm. So I rang it and answered. And I just said, is Mr. Lempert there, please? Yeah. And she said, yes, I'll, I'll get him for you. And he came on, same voice as ever. Yep. And had said, who am I speaking to? I said, it's Linda. And he went, Linda, Linda, Linda. I, I know so many beautiful English women that with, you know, called Linda. Um, well, real, he was a real charmer. Yeah. He really was, you know. Um, well, that's how he got away with. Got yeah. Away all with sorts it all. of things. Yeah. yeah. He was a real. He was a bit of a flirter, I should yeah. think. I would think. I don't. Didn't know him that much in my adult mm-hmm. life. Did no, I? exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, I can definitely remember that. Oh, I know so many. But I don't recognise the voice. You know. I can't think who it is, or this, you know. Yeah. And then he went, how many years have I known you? Yeah. And I said, just over 28, because I think I was nearly coming up to 29. Yeah. Um, and then it went deathly quiet. Okay, so then it's... Because it was very brave of me. I wasn't very brave yeah, in those days. Yeah, it's bold. Yeah. Um, it's probably because you hadn't planned it. Probably, yeah. If you'd gone over planning to try and track him down, yeah. you might have been more Because I was, you know, I wasn't like that. I was no. a bit of a wimp yeah. in, in those days. And it went quiet. And then he went, what, my Linda? Yeah. And I went, yeah. And he went, oh goodness, uh, how are you? Where are you? (laughs) And I went, I'm fine. I'm in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) And he was, that's it, come come to the office. Whereabouts are you? We're at a hotel, come to the office. Nothing at all. Really pleased to see us. Yeah. Met us, you know, she yeah. let us in. It was upstairs and we went in yeah. and she was there and he introduced me to mm-hmm. said hello. I mean, it was not her fault. Um, it's not my fault, you know. So, no, I guess no. Um, <laughs> and we stayed there for a little while. I don't know if it was that evening that we went round to the flat mm. and then we went out for a meal. Yeah. And it was sitting at this table and he put his hand on my arm and said, you know, I, I never meant to hurt your mother, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think I just said, just, I don't want to talk about yeah. it. You know, Separate the yeah. two things. What was the point of going over that? You know, no. to go up and meet him, again, just to have a go at him? Yeah, again, because you, know? you hadn't gone over to find him and no. make amends no. or, you know. You know, um, there's no point going and saying hi to him. And then, you know, what, what they did was between them. That really was the last time she saw him. Just a handful of instant photos to show it even happened. She did write, and he wrote back. And 
I hid that letter so well, I have no idea what I did with it or mm. where the photos are. Yeah. Which is a shame now. Yeah. That could have been the last photos of my dad. The letters remain unfound, but we did find those photos. And there he is, with a copper brown tan from the south of France and jet black hair from a bottle. These little Polaroid windows show the meeting as it was, a moment unburdened by anything that had come before. I suppose I could have tried again to keep in touch. Oh, no. I did write to him yeah. again and said that I'd had a little, had a baby boy. Okay. Um, and he wrote back saying, you know, but... Um, Muzzle top. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he didn't get back to me. Yeah. I think he said congratulations on that. But then I suppose I was tied up with you and he yeah. didn't get back to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I was too worried that if he started sending letters to me and one arrived while Lanny yeah, was there. Exactly. Pauline tried to find him a couple of times. Okay. And she didn't know until after Mum had died that I met up with Dad. I'd still like Accessible. to know where Dad died. Records are gradually being digitised, but a request for a death certificate from someone who died in Paris any time after 1986 must be directed to the arrondissement in which they lived. I don't even know if he actually died in Paris, but I set about systematically submitting requests to all 20 arrondissements. In fact, I submitted every request twice, as each search is limited to a 10-year period. What I got is a series of Gérigret replies, sometimes via email, sometimes via post. Every now and then, I will repeat the process, hoping it will somehow produce a different result. So we don't know when or where he died. In fact, we're only assuming he did. For all we know, he's 105, living in Rio with wife number three. Maybe not, but if there'd been any attempt to inform his daughters of his passing, it was not successful. It's frustrating to have uncovered so much about his past and so little about the relatively recent. A genealogist or private investigator could probably find the answers I'm looking for, but I lack the kind of funds to pursue this speculatively. And actually, there is a sense now that this is my story, my quest, and I've not given up yet. Only a few years older than my mother, there is every chance that Anna is still alive. I did find contact details for an Anna Lempert living in Germany. I sent a letter explaining a little, but received a polite reply from her daughter, explaining that her mother had never been married to anyone called Adolf. So, for us at least, his is a story with no final chapter. Sometimes in circumstances like that, all you can do is make the story your own and write the ending yourself. Perhaps I ought to go to France and see if I can find um, out anything else. Yeah, that's my next thing, because yeah. I might... Part, I want to go to Lemberg yeah. Fancy going with your mother? Yeah, I was going to... Yeah, we'll do a little... Yeah? A little you don't trip. have to. I no. don't, wouldn't expect you <laughs> we to. We might but, do that. Yeah. Well, that'll be the next chapter if yeah. we go there. Yeah. I'd definitely be up for that. The Unbordered Podcast is written and presented by me, Andrew Evans, with contributions from my mother, Lynn Evans, from Professor of Law at UCL, Philippe Sands, and from Chris Hendricks of the RAF Museum in Hendon. Abstracts of the immigration documents were provided by John Burren. Visit unboarderedpodcast.com to see pretty much all the documents mentioned here, as well as links to episodes and a playlist of the soundtrack. If you would like to get in touch, please tweet me at unbordedpod or email me at unbordedpodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is dedicated to my auntie Pauline, who I think would really have loved to have heard this, and to my nan, who definitely wouldn't have. Sorry, nan. <laughs> <laughs>